0: Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment, health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health equity.
1: From KVPR, you're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Today on our show, a new report from the ACLU finds that local sheriff's departments are cooperating with immigration officials to transfer people from jails to federal detention facilities. And later, a Fresno native wins a prestigious national award for his work documenting the Central Valley. But first... The World Ag Expo just wrapped up in Tulare, and with a thousand exhibitors and more than a hundred thousand attendees, it's no surprise that it was noisy. And this year more than ever, those loud crowds were drawn to robots. KVPR's Carrie Klein was there, and she brings us this story of the growing intersection of ag and tech.
2: Right near the 35-foot-tall wind machine, between the Toyota Tundra hoisted 100 feet in the air and the peach cobbler stand, an orange robot about the size of a
3: refrigerator has gathered
2: an audience.
3: Oh my gosh, it's, this has been awesome. I mean, the people on the street just stop and stare, like, what is this thing? That's
2: Anna Haldawang, CEO and founder of Insight Track. And their self-driving rover has been programmed to shoot mummies.
3: Yes, mummies. And so, what is a mummy? So during the almond harvest, not every... For the
2: uninitiated, like myself, mummies are the carcasses of almonds that were never harvested. Left on the tree, they shrivel and turn brown, and if they're not removed, pests like the navel orange worm can burrow in and invade. So Insight Tracks mummy remover rolls through the orchard, and like a tiny orange combat tank, little turrets shoot the mummies right out of the tree using
3: biodegradable pellets. So we've trained it through thousands and thousands of images to identify what a mummy is and what it isn't. So we have depth sensing cameras on it that are able to accurately shoot those mummies.
2: The mummy remover's key technology isn't radar or lidar, but computer vision. It's a form of artificial intelligence in which computers use cameras to interpret the visual world. It's the same technology used by the Israeli company Tevel Aerobotics. At Tavel's booth, a pair of bright blue boxes are hovering over the ground and plucking candy red apples off a tree. Despite what they look and sound like, Moshe Porat says they are definitely not drones.
0: We are not developing drones, we are developing uh, something called FAR. It's flying autonomous robots.
2: They're FARs, or F-A-R-S. Porat is a marketing exec with Tavel, And he says, unlike drones, their FARs don't need operators. They've been programmed to spot a ripe apple, extend a robotic arm equipped with a suction cup, and grab it. Then drop it gently into a bin on another autonomous vehicle. No humans necessary.
0: You don't need to be a pilot. You don't need to be familiar with drones. Nothing is for dummies, so-called.
2: So far, they've programmed FARs to pick apples, stone fruit, and citrus. Autonomous vehicles seem to lurk in every corner here. There's also the laser weeder, a Zamboni-like machine that zaps weeds with lasers, and Gus, a sleek steel vehicle, almost like a Tesla truck, that sprays pesticides along a programmed route. It honks at the end of every row. The sheer number of products was a surprise even to Marcus Herrera, who led a seminar at the expo on autonomous functions in ag. I caught up with him after hours via Zoom.
4: It's shocking. I thought that I knew of most of it. And then I just got blown away with so many more products and, and systems and features that are being showed. Herrera
2: is a sales application engineer with a manufacturing company called Hydac, And he says these products have tons of potential.
4: Just in terms of productivity, it's huge. And then also in terms of safety, the more and more our machines are getting smart and helping us with our job, you know, the more we can focus on other things possibly that are going on around us.
2: Many of these products aim to solve the problem of labor shortages. Data from the USDA shows the number of farm workers has declined 20 percent in the last two decades, a challenge growers are increasingly reporting during the pandemic. But while this new technology may help farmers, it could harm farm workers by taking away their jobs.
4: With the average minimum wage cost going up and the amount of work that that takes, all these features are saving the farmer money by not having to hire other hands to do work for them.
2: But there is at least one product at the Expo that aims to help farm workers. It's a so-called collaborative robot named Burrow. Yes, the Spanish word for donkey.
4: In principle, this product is it's it's Disney's Wally for agriculture in a 1.0 format.
2: That's Charlie Anderson, the CEO of Burrow. It's essentially a self-driving table that tags along in the fields. Workers can stack their trays of fruit on it, and it can be set to follow people or travel between them.
4: So like if it loses somebody or if somebody walks away for a second, it's kind of like a good dog. It's grabbing the next person.
2: And rather than replace people, Burrow's strategy to ease labor shortages is to make the job less onerous. Though Anderson argues it can also increase productivity. It saves farm workers the trouble of pushing a cart or wheelbarrow by hand, and it can hold more weight. Plus, the robot's touchscreen? Entirely in Spanish. As for whether any of these products could be game-changers, Marcus Herrera says only time will tell. But he says it sure is an exciting time. For Valley Public Radio, I'm Carrie Klein.
1: This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. One of the best times to view agriculture in the San Joaquin Valley is right now, when many fruit and nut orchards are in full bloom. KVPR's Sarith Hawk visited a farm along Fresno County's iconic Blossom Trail and produced this audio postcard.
5: There's beautiful gardens everywhere, but there's not many places. It's like a sea of flowers, literally for miles and miles. I'm Jonathan Avedian. Community Development Specialist with the County of Fresno. The orchards when they're in full bloom, it's just like a sea of color, intense pinks, light pinks, that uh, it's a very unique uh, feature that we have. The county of Fresno has, as of right now, the number one ag county in the, in the nation, but a lot of the, all the tree fruits, the almonds, nectarines, peaches, plums, apricots, pluots, um, all have a blooming cycle that uh, happens right about this time of year. Having a, a tree bloom is one thing, having just a full orchard in bloom visually is a very unique experience if you've never seen it. And it really shows that there's more to agriculture than just the stuff you get at the grocery store. There's visual beauty to what goes into producing the food as well as the wonderful fruit that we produce. Well, the trail is a driving route, and that's one thing a lot of people think, oh, how long does it take me to walk the trail? Um, Well, it's 60 miles, so (laughs) if you're gonna walk it, plan on taking a couple days best place to start to plan your trip is our website which is goblossomtrail.com and you know there's a whole industry you know supporting from the the farmer itself the uh, the laborers that pick the fruits the packing houses that pack it up and ship it to the grocery stores Um, the farmers that have their farm stands at their at their facility and sell directly to the public uh, or take it to farmers markets and where you can get the you know the freshest and the best of the best Uh, it's a, a really you know it's a a huge part of our economy.
3: My name is Lisette Garcia, and I'm the owner and operator of Sweet Girl Farms here in Reedley, California. A lot of people do come by, but it specifically happens during the blossom uh, season because people come and take pictures. It's nice to get out and just see all of the fields because eventually those are the blooms that become our beautiful stone fruit in the summertime. Get cherries? Yes. <laughs> That's yes. the first thing I bought here was cherries. Yes. <laughs> Darlene, Darlene Taves. Yes, I volunteer everywhere. <laughs> yeah, Darlene has been a supporter since um, the early days of the farm stand. Yeah, yeah, she, she's she been um, coming out on a weekly basis. I mean, you got, okay, pumpkin seeds, peanuts. I mean, Sometimes she has things that you can't get in a supermarket. Like, uh, the fava beans, yeah. there's different types of dill that I carry or like specialty cucumbers. A lot of people, our customers at the beginning but they become friends just like Darlene and I have become like really good friends after when she sees me like running out into the field she's like don't worry hold on hold on I'll go and harvest it for you yeah and so then I come back and then, you know like it makes people laugh or they're like oh my god you know it's really um gratifying for me and the customer because then they see me in action actually harvesting everything and it's direct um so it's really fresh and then people get like a yeah, yeah, literally. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel it makes the interaction really cool. Most places already have it all out. It's been sitting there for a while, but she'll go out there and, and make sure it's fresh, fresh. So that's, that's really, really good, especially for us that like to cook. Mm. Yeah, we, we see it in our palates when we taste it. There's it's a big difference from buying it from the store than having it picked fresh. Having the responsibility of growing and then sharing it, I think the sharing part is really cool. That's how I've been able to have really cool um, interactions and then meet a lot of people and then make friends. So it really does become like um, more than just, it's more than just a storefront.
1: You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Millions of monarch butterflies once migrated across California. Now researchers worry about dwindling numbers and some fear they may be disappearing here altogether. This year, though, there has been a butterfly boom. Our colleague at CAP Radio, environment and climate change reporter Manola Sakaida, was there to see it.
2: It's a good thing we started counting yes, it's a, oh, oh,
6: look, Maya, look. I'm with a group of butterfly counters. We're looking up at trees in Pacific Grove's Monarch Butterfly Sanctuary. That's near the ocean by Monterey.
2: There
6: they go. We just saw the first group of monarchs fly off for the day. so
2: beautiful.
6: It's beautiful, but it's also a sign that the butterfly counters are running out of time. We started the day at sunrise. To count monarchs, you need to start before temperatures reach 55 degrees. That's when it's warm enough for them to start moving. And you also need enough sun to be able to spot butterflies in the trees.
4: Okay, so now let's get in the light.
6: Stephanie Turcott is a counter who's done this work for a decade. She's gotten pretty good at it. You get
4: something called monarch eyes. A longtime monarch person in this area kind of coined it, and I love it because it is true. You can... With your naked eye, eventually you can see them in the trees, even though people will come in here and they'll swear there's nothing here. And I'm like, no, I see some right up there. And they're like, really?
6: If you want to see monarch butterflies in the winter, Pacific Grove is the place to be. Usually, this is where you can find thousands of monarchs overwintering. That's when butterflies settle in an area to shelter during colder months. But last year, there were no butterflies in Pacific Grove. For years, researchers have seen dwindling numbers of monarchs all along the West Coast.
2: We're still just at a fraction of the number of
6: butterflies that we had 20 years ago. That's Liza Murphy. She's one of the counters today and also works for the Pacific Grove Museum of Natural History. There's no single reason for the decline of monarch butterflies, but she told me that one factor could be climate change.
2: They've been adapted over thousands and thousands of years to a certain rhythm of nature. And now the pace of the change of nature is so much faster. So why
6: did we see a sudden uptick this year? This is what I asked Serena Jepsen. She directs the Endangered Species Program at the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation.
2: This was most likely a result of having the right climate last year during the monarch butterfly's breeding season to
7: produce a big population.
6: This year, we've seen close to a quarter million monarchs. That's comparable to what we had a few years ago, but it doesn't mean we're back to normal. To me, it says we have a, a little bit more time to work on recovering the monarch population.
2: They have not been wiped out as we had feared last year.
6: That's where the butterfly counters come in. The Xerce Society offers training for volunteers. And tracking these numbers helps researchers get a better idea about where monarchs are going and how we might help them thrive on their long journey. That's why Kat Morgan decided to join. She's
3: another counter I met on my visit. It's volunteers who do the monarch counts, and some of the staff participate in that, but there are places where there aren't staff to do this, so it's all volunteers. And it really inspires me.
4: Monterey Pine, east of FF100. Yes. Monterey pine 49, we have 60 and 426.
6: Got it. After two hours, the counters came together to compare numbers.
4: 600, 220, The final estimate,
6: 7,756.
4: Which is actually good, that means that not as many have left.
6: Any of these monarchs could survive and pave the way for future generations of migrating butterflies. And volunteers make their journey a little easier and Pacific Grove, I'm Manola Sakaida.
1: This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. On Thursday, the City of Fresno unveiled a plan to make roads safer for pedestrians and cyclists around Woodward Park. The new safety plan came following the death of Paul Moore, a Kerman teacher who was killed last month while riding his bike in the intersection of Friant and Audubon. To learn more about the planned changes, I spoke with Tony Molina, president of the Fresno County Bike Coalition. What was your reaction to the plans that the city announced uh, this week?
8: You know, I'm very grateful to um, the city, uh, our elected officials and, and city staff for stepping up to start to address the issues that uh, we've been trying to uh, bring before them. And uh, so uh, so I think that's positive. I'm really happy. I, I was really happy today to see all the uh, support that we had. Uh, so it, it, it's, I think it's, it's a, a great uh, first step in the right direction. I um you know the proof is in the pudding so it will you know take some time to sort out exactly uh, how this is all going to play out so I I have taken a, a somewhat of a wait and see attitude as far as <laughs> uh, sure. uh waiting waiting to see you know the the devil is not always in the details and so I am glad to see that they're, they're going to take some immediate actions there so I I'm, I'm really really happy to see that. The long-term things, uh, again, you know, there's, there's some uncertainty about that, but at least uh, there's some movement to, you know, take a look at things. So, I think I, think I feel good that, um, that we've, you know, gotten some attention, and uh, unfortunately, you know, it, it's, it's so tragic, you right. know, that sometimes uh, uh, lo- losing a, a loved one is a high price to pay for, for uh, you know, getting things to happen. So I I I really have kind of mixed feelings. I wish we had been able to uh, you know see some of these changes that, that I'd like to see across uh, Fresno. Quite frankly, uh, that uh, we need desperately uh, for our <laughs> vulnerable road users, uh, bicyclists, pedestrians, our uh, our uh, disability community, uh, you know, children, you know, all all of the above here. So. Safe well, streets well, give,
1: for all. <laughs> give me a sense of what what those specific kinds of changes that you would like to see take place. Like the, yeah, the city specific,
8: specifically, um, one of the things uh, that we've been advocating for is uh, leading pedestrian intervals uh, to give uh, pedestrians the um, the uh, right of way to enter the crosswalk ahead of um, the you know right turning vehicles uh, in this particular location so I was really glad to see that they did say that they are planning to implement both uh, no right turn on red uh, around the park which is great but uh, also the leading pedestrian intervals and I I hope that uh, leading pedestrian intervals uh, become um, uh, uh, widespread across the city Uh, the um, uh, there are cities, uh, for example, uh, Austin, Texas is a Vision Zero city, and they implemented leading pedestrian intervals, which, uh, again, it gives you the, the uh, six to seven second head start for the pedestrians to enter the crosswalk. Um, and they had a 54% reduction in, in uh, you know, pedestrian crashes and, and crosswalks uh, as a result. So it's uh, so something that like that is, is pretty pretty simple. Uh, things so, and it could really, really make a, a big difference. So, that's an uh, the crosswalk, uh, um, you know, changes, uh, high visibility crosswalks, uh, the, they're that that's, uh, you know, gonna help. Um, so, uh, those those are some things that I'd like to see citywide.
1: Well, say more about that, because I I think that some of the critique that I've uh, heard is that, you know, it's great that the city has made these changes around the Woodward Park area, which is, of course, you know, so popular with with, um, you know, people who are who are out on on foot or on bike. Uh, But there are many parts of the city where you um, have an opportunity to increase safety. Um, And and so I've I've gotten a sense that there's a bit of frustration that this change happened so quickly in North Fresno but not in in other parts of the city. And I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts about that.
8: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yes, that's, that's uh, something that we, you know, are, we have a coalition, we call the safe access to Woodward Park um, coalition, and we are very sensitive to the fact that, you know, some people may say, well, you know, this is happening so so quickly here, but it's so much need, needed elsewhere. and so so we have actually uh, would very much like to see a, a safe access to parks um, initiative citywide. And we think that the Woodward park is um, an example of how fast city can move <laughs> when, uh, when push comes to shove. Uh, and so we, we want this actually to inspire uh, other neighborhoods that need the, these changes as much or more than the, the Woodward Park neighborhood. Um, the, the Woodward Park neighborhood, on the other hand, is, is, it is a magnet. Uh, it's a regional park. Uh, so people come from all over the city um, to, to Woodward Park. And so it does affect everybody uh, throughout the city. Um, and it's, it's the access route uh, to the river, to the San Joaquin River. So, you know, pe- to to get to the to the river, you know, on a bike or, or or walking, you have to go through the park. So it's not just the park; it's also the river uh, that you know access that we're we're concerned with. But we are, we are very much interested in uh, collaborating with the city and with the Measure P Parks Commission on creating safe access to other other parts of the city, including Roading Park. And uh, other other parks uh, that people should be able to walk and bike to. Uh, so this is, uh, I think we've gotten some attention on 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 this area. One one of the other t- challenges for Woodward Park, though, is because it is perceived to be in a you know higher income area. It's actually harder to get funding um, for these types of things because a lot of, uh, of transportation, uh, active transportation funding it does. Um, Prioritize, rightfully so, um, low low income areas.
1: You know, the weather is warming up. We've we've got uncharacteristically warm temperatures this weekend. Spring is right around the corner. More people are going to be out on their bikes and and walking and running. What are your messages when it comes to safety, not only for cyclists but also for motorists?
8: Right. Uh, so yeah. So th- that's uh, that's a real. Um, Great, great thing right now we are getting so many uh, people uh, out on bikes. So for for bicyclists, um, I'm a league cycling instructor uh, certified by the League of American Bicyclists. So we we always tell people to follow the rules of the road, follow the law, be predictable, be conspicuous, uh, you know, plan ahead and and ride ready. Um, uh, and, And so uh, following those rules will will generally keep uh, bicyclists uh, out of trouble. Um, we we talk about the five layers of safety that can prevent about ninety percent of crashes. First uh, is you know being in control of your bike. Uh, don't be talking on your phone while you're riding your bike. Uh, following rules, you know of the road, uh, getting in control of your. Uh, lanes and communicating by signaling your your turns uh, if you're going to change positions. And then we also teach um, uh, in our smart cycling classes. uh, uh, if the first three layers of, uh, of the five layers fail, then there are some uh, skills that you can learn to do uh ha- hazard avoidance uh, things that we teach to do it like a quick turn and an instant stop uh, and things of that nature. And then lastly, uh, the last layer of safety is uh, the passive layer of like wearing a helmet. And I, I wear gloves, I wear glasses. So uh, those types of things can help, uh, you know, be a, a safety factor as well. So for for motorists, it's get off your cell phone, uh, pay attention, turn your phone off. <laughs> I think uh, that's one of the one of the things that that um, you know is just so, there are so many distractions uh, for drivers. Uh, so that would be my number one message. But look for cyclists, uh, be be on the lookout uh, for. Uh, pedestrians and, and crosswalks. Pedestrians have the right of way in the crosswalks in Fresno. Uh, we have so many crosswalk violations. So uh, prioritize uh, the vulnerable road users that that don't have a, a big armored vehicle around them when they're when they're going through the city.
1: And I, and watch those speed limits too. I'd imagine
8: exactly. Yeah. Uh, yes, thank you. Yeah, yes, because if you get hit uh, over forty miles an hour, that uh, you're about a ninety percent chance of getting getting killed. Um, uh, so uh, slow down. Think about uh, how long it will take to, to stop.
1: Well, I've been talking with Tony Molina, the president of Fresno County Bike Coalition. Tony, thanks so much for being on the show.
8: Thank you, Kathleen.
1: This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Shock. California lawmakers have been trying to reduce cooperation between federal immigration authorities and local law enforcement agencies for nearly a decade. But a new report out this week suggests that sheriff's departments in the Central Valley are still cooperating with immigration officials to transfer people from local jails to federal detention facilities. KVPR's Mathi Bolaños has studied the report and is here to tell me more. Hi.
7: Hey, Kathleen. So,
1: why is it important to California lawmakers to restrict cooperation between U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement and local law enforcement?
7: Well, California has positioned itself as this pro-immigrant state, and many lawmakers say that people who are released from state jails have already served their sentence. So they say that transferring them to ICE to be detained and deported subjects them to double punishment. And they're also saying that allowing cooperation between local law enforcement and federal immigration officials leads to mistrust among immigrant community members.
1: So, what were the main takeaways from the report?
7: There are a few, but the biggest takeaway is that sheriff's departments in Madeira, Tulare, Merced, Kings, Fresno, Stanislaus, and Kern County were working closely with ICE agents to facilitate transfers from local jails to ICE detention centers. And this is after California lawmakers passed three different laws over the last eight years meant to reduce the number of transfers from local jails to ICE facilities.
1: What are those laws and and
7: how are they supposed to prevent ICE transfers? So there's the Trust Act, the Truth Act, and the Values Act, and the Trust Act became a law in 2014, and it prohibits law enforcement officials from detaining a person after he or she becomes eligible for release in order to facilitate an ICE transfer, and the only exception there is if the person committed a serious crime. And in 2017, the Truth Act went into effect, and this law requires local law agencies to provide a written consent form to people in the language they speak before meeting with ICE, let them know that any interview with ICE is voluntary, and whether the local law agency is planning to cooperate with ICE on the person's case. And lastly, the Values Act prevents state and local law enforcement agencies from using their own resources on behalf of ICE. It also requires California law enforcement agencies to report to the Attorney General's office the number of times they transferred people into ICE custody. And the AG's office publishes data from those reports each year. So did the report find that the departments violated these laws? Well, it's complicated. There are a few instances where the departments sort of circumvented these laws. Maria Romani is the author of the report and a staff attorney with the ACLU's Northern California Immigrants' Rights Program, and she explains one of the ways the department's worked around the laws. She calls it a, quote, shadow system. Here she is.
9: And what those are is the sheriff processes somebody who's in their custody and will release, quote unquote, that person into a non-public area of the jail where the person cannot actually leave the jail. But... ICE can access that area of the
7: jail. And we know the Madera, Merced, Kings and Tulare counties use this system, according to emails from ICE agents to the Fresno County Sheriff's Department in 2018, which was obtained by the ACLU of Northern California. And as I mentioned earlier, local law enforcement agencies are required to report these transfers to the attorney general's office. But Romani says this system allows the local law agency to undercount ICE transfers. And we can see that in the report. According to ICE documents, there were more than 1,000 transfers since 2018. That's three times more than the attorney general's office reported. How did this happen? Well, according to Maria, it comes down to a lack of resources and information for immigrant communities. And that's especially true here in the Valley, where people have limited access to legal assistance and don't know where to report problems.
9: You know, we have our immigrant community here, which faces high poverty levels, language barriers, a dearth of legal service providers in the region. so when violations occur, whether it's by ICE or whether it's by the sheriff's office, um, People often don't know who to turn to.
7: She says oftentimes they don't get legal assistance, and if they do, it's usually too late.
1: Well, how have sheriff's departments responded to this new report?
7: The Kings County Sheriff's Department said they've complied with state laws, and the Madera Sheriff's Department says it only recently took over the county jail in April 2021, but it is, quote, fully committed to investigating these allegations. The Tulare County Sheriff's Department said it needed time to review the report before it provided a response, and the other sheriff's departments did not respond to a request for comment.
1: Well, are there any efforts to close this loophole in the law?
7: Yes. Advocates are pushing for California lawmakers to pass the Vision Act. And here's Maria Romani again
9: local law enforcement agency would be allowed to transfer anybody to ICE. There will hopefully be less instances of these unlawful transfers taking place. It would prohibit local law enforcement from communicating with ICE. And that's been another loophole we've seen in the Central Valley, this overcommunication with immigration enforcement.
7: The Vision Act has already passed through the California Assembly. The legislation must now make its way through the state Senate.
1: And I am sure you will keep us up to date on what happens with that legislation, right? Yes. Great. Well, Mavi, thanks so much. Thank you. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Fresno native Ryan Christopher Jones is a photojournalist whose work documenting the Central Valley has run in publications like the New York Times and The Atlantic. Yesterday, it was announced that he is the recipient of this year's prestigious American Mosaic Journalism Prize, which comes with an unrestricted cash award of $100,000. I caught up with Jones to get his reaction to the big news. So first of all, I just have to say congratulations. How did this process come about? How did you learn that you had won?
10: Uh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, I learned because I heard from the program director, Brian Neely at the, um, at the Heising Simons foundation. I got an e- email from him at the beginning of the year, uh, basically saying, Hey, um, I'm in charge of this division of this foundation. And sometimes we have s- some money for journalists and it's my job to talk to uh bunch of photographers, to a bunch of journalists just to see kind of what the state of the industry is right now and, and what are you feeling, what are the struggles. And he said, you know, so we I talked to a lot of a lot of journalists just to kind of get a sense of of what the what the industry is like. So did you have a time to to chat in the next the next few days? And I said, sure, fine. Yeah. Let's set up a time to talk. And uh, we we talked a few days later and he asked me about a couple stories that I'd worked on, he told me about himself and about the program and he slow played it. He slow played it and he said, well, you know, so I I call because uh, we are this foundation and we like to support freelance journalists. And every year we have a big prize called the American Mosaic Journalism Prize. And this year you won. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I, I had, I mean, I immediately started crying. Because (laughs) I had no idea what was happening. Um, And he told me what the prize was. And I just I was I was in complete and utter shock.
1: Well, because and just to I would put this into context, this is among the largest cash prizes available in the field of journalism. It is a game-changing prize to win. How is this going to change your life?
10: Uh, Well, Contrary to, prior, to to popular belief, journalists don't exactly make a ton of money. Um, we do this work.
1: I could I confirm that.
10: <laughs> we okay. do this work because we love it and because we feel it's important, but we don't exactly get into it to uh, to get wealthy to get rich. Um, so that means that as a freelancer, and I, if I have to travel, I'm constantly putting stuff on on credit cards and paying it down and putting. Everything and so it's, it's this kind of vicious cycle of, well, this is part of the economic landscape if I want to participate in this in this industry. So, I mean, it, this means that I'll be able to work with a little bit more freedom, with, with a lot more freedom, uh, without having and, and, and still doing the work in in a responsible way and putting the time in. Um, I'm I'm starting a PhD program in social anthropology this this fall, and. Um, it's going to allow me to live a little bit more decently uh, and still while trying to trying to do my work, trying to go through grad school. And yeah, it, it, if it sounds like I'm still struggling to find the words for all this, it's because I'm still struggling to find words for all of this.
1: That, that is totally understandable. Um, yeah. Well, let's talk about the work. For which you have been recognized, and you were you were a guest on the show, you know, a few months back, talking about uh, a project you did that was published in the Atlantic, in which you documented one family in Fresno as they transitioned from poverty into the middle class, and that's a work that's very indicative of the kind of things that you have tackled over the years, whether you're working with uh, farmers or or immigrant communities. Can you just talk about what inspires you? How do you go about selecting your subjects?
10: Um, a lot of it is geography. I, I first, uh, and that geography happens to be Central California. Uh, when I first moved to New York, I was curious about the kinds of stories that I would work on and how, how can I carve out uh, my my voice and my vision in this kind of bloated industry. And I, I realized that I... That Fresno is often overlooked, um, so I started paying a little bit more attention to the great local reporting that was being done, and you know, by the Fresno Bee, KVPR uh, in in Central California, and just noticing trends and noticing what people are talking about. And I would come back to visit my family and just ask a bunch of questions. And so uh, there is no particular recipe for how i choose my stories but it's generally this it's generally just the stuff that i've been curious by you know for however many for however many years um for instance the punjabi sikh community that i that i reported on last year i I grew up with sikh friends and because of the farmers protest happening in india i figured that it was a good opportunity to talk about the Indian Punjabi farming community in, in California. So it was the idea of making a, a global story domestic. So yeah, I, I reached out to a couple local friends and just to get a feel of the scene. And I pitched it to the times and, and it turned into one of my more meaningful stories of the last couple of years because I was able to, to uh, learn more about a community that I was always close to, but didn't understand from a like really internally. Um, so yeah, I'd say it's a choosing the choosing the people and the communities that I, I work on. It's it's rooted in my curiosities, and it's a pretty holistic way of finding people, just asking questions and seeing if they're willing to talk.
1: And then I understand you've also done some exploration of your of your own identity and and your Mexican heritage through your work as well. Is that
10: right? Correct, correct. Yeah, that's been a big part of my work over the years and a huge theme that I keep going back to and I feel incredibly lucky that uh, I have journalism as a vehicle to ask these questions of both my world uh, and and of myself. Um, So yeah, I'm constantly working on stories that are affecting Mexican-American communities in the United States, which I am a part of, and it helps to it helps to have my camera and it helps to have my skills as a journalist to to ask these questions and again to learn more um, yeah not just about myself but about the things that I'm curious in
1: so you've been outspoken on the topic of ethics in photojournalism and and this is a topic that I, I am really passionate about i I teach journalism and I, I spend a fair amount of time talking to my students about, how the images associated with certain stories um, can flatten topics, can uh, reduce communities to stereotypes. And, and And I would love to hear your thoughts about you know how the images we associate with with topics like you know the war on drugs or or like immigration uh, shape our understanding of those issues.
10: We are visual creatures. We understand so much of our world by how it presents itself visually. Uh, which means that the camera is an incredible tool. It can be used uh, as a weapon, uh, but it could also be used uh, as a as a mode of enlightenment. And so I think that I, for my career, I've taken it on myself um, to use that tool uh, responsibly and, and ethically and Photojournalism hasn't done the best job at uh, reporting on vulnerable communities, often kind of reducing uh, suffering and pain as like the only thing that, that these communities or these people are, are capable of. If you look at the way that the, you know, the war on, the quote unquote war on drugs uh, has been visually reported over the last 40 or 50 years, those photos often look the same. Uh, they often look the same, in that they're usually black and white. They're usually very bleak. Um, there's very little connection in them, and it basically just shows people suffering, as if that's the only thing that they're capable of doing. Uh, so I am—I'm uh, I'm by far not the only one. Like a whole host of of colleagues are uh, re- incredibly responsible journalists when it comes to the power of the camera. Um, So I I feel myself lucky to be a part of, you know, this kind of growing cohort of people who are photographers who report the truth and in authenticity, but also they do it with a sense of nuance and compassion. Um, So, yeah, that's that's how I approach all of my work. It doesn't matter who I'm covering.
1: Well, it's um, it's extraordinary work. Do do you have a sense of what projects uh, you'll be tackling in the future?
10: yeah I, I hope to do a lot more work in the Central Valley. Uh, I'm very curious about doing more research and storytelling on the ways that Mexican American communities and Latino communities are responding to uh, increasingly hostile environments, um, both through land, air, water, uh, things that afflict the Central Valley in particular. And so yeah, with this prize it'll it'll give me a little bit more freedom to to do that and to, to do the reporting with thoroughly and responsibly.
1: Well, I've been talking with photojournalist Ryan Christopher Jones, winner of the 2022 American Mosaic Journalism Prize. Ryan, congratulations.
10: Thanks, Kathleen.
1: And finally, Tchaikovsky isn't the only composer who wrote great ballets. Americans wrote their own classic works for great choreographers too. The Sequoia Symphony Orchestra will be performing ballet music by two American composers in a concert this Saturday. KVPR's David Ause spoke with music director Bruce Kiesling.
11: Bruce Keesling, so great to have you with us today.
12: Thanks, David. It's wonderful to be here once again.
11: So, next concert coming up this Saturday, and the theme is American Ballet. Now, I know in your years with Sequoia Symphony, you've done all of Stravinsky's ballet music. Do you have a special love for ballet music? Well, I have
12: a special love for theater music, for sure. I love music that tells stories. And so I've always been drawn to that. Even the great sort of symphonies of Tchaikovsky, which I think are almost programmatic, even though technically symphonies. But yeah, I've always been drawn to to stories. My earliest conducting experiences were with theater music, whether musical theater, opera. And so it just seemed like a really natural fit. And the other thing is I find that our our audience response to that, the, the storytelling nature and the programmatic nature of that. I usually talk for a few minutes right before we play a piece and they seem to just really hang on that. Um, and afterward, the, the positive feedback from the audience about, hey, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Because when I heard that part in the story, it, I enjoyed the concert more because of that. So I think because of my own love for it and because of the audience reaction. Those are two reasons that we just seem to, over the years, have done a lot of program music. And so, and I love the stories of great ballets, and especially in the 20th century, where, you know, Copeland actually wrote about this the idea that if you were a serious composer in the 19th century, you wrote opera. If you were a serious composer in the 20th century, you wrote ballets.
11: Let's go ahead and talk about the two pieces on your program, and starting with Copeland, since you mentioned him, one of the great American ballets.
12: Yeah, definitely. I I must confess I have a real soft spot specifically for Appalachian Spring, which is a piece I remember listening to as a kid, and something about it just spoke to me right away. I find his Copeland's music in particular this. It's deceptively simple, you know. When you hear it, I I talked to the musicians last night at the rehearsal. In fact, you know, we sometimes we hear this piece and we think, well, that doesn't sound hard. And then you play the thing, and you're like, there's a million traps. And I say, every time you make a mistake, I was like, you Copland guffaws because he got you, because uh, he's just trying to set these little traps for you because it it's deceptively it sounds easy. This was actually the last of his three big ballets, Rodeo or Rodeo, depending on how you pronounce that, and Billy the Kid, of course. And then this was actually the final ballet of these big three that he wrote, and certainly the smallest. You know, the other pieces were written for full symphony orchestra and the big Buckaroo Holiday or Hoedown, and Billy the Kid that has huge orchestra for that, a big orchestral sound. Here... Copland only wrote for thirteen instruments originally in that version, so very, very intimate and written for Martha Graham, who requested it, and I think in some ways his best work.
11: What do you makes this ballet so distinctly American or Americana?
12: Well, you know, Copland's early music was very experimental, and he really pushed the limits of uh, tonality in the nineteen twenties, and his first works were heavily jazz influenced even his uh, organ concerto that was very jazz influenced but then he kind of took a major turn later in his career and kind of him, he wanted to write music for the people and and so he embraced kind of what dvorak i was I think dvorak was the one who really taught uh, americans to embrace their own musical identity and the vernacular music of our place now dvorak thought that was going to be music of native americans when he talked about he said there's this the treasure trove of Native American music. Copeland ended up turning more toward folk songs and songs of the uh, you know, the cowboy, you know, for Billy the Kid, he actually has a book of cowboy songs that he quotes. And of course, most famously in Appalachian Spring, he quotes Simple Gifts. There is this sort of simple and homespun identity the movie scores of that era and certainly later too which which conjure the idea of the great plains there's something about his music that suggests the american west
11: we're speaking with Bruce Keisling music director of the sequoia symphony orchestra their concert's coming up on this saturday let's talk about the other work another brilliant composer I think one of the great composers of the 20th century, not just great American composer, not just great jazz composer, but just a great composer. And that's Duke Ellington. He wrote a lot of music for dance over the years. This was one that later in his career, the river. Let's hear about it. Yeah,
12: absolutely. I mean, he wrote, he wrote a ton of music. And again, we tend to think, I think of Duke Ellington in a certain way, the sort of heyday of this swing uh, epitomized in don't get around much anymore or, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. But as you said, as he came through the 1950s and later, he really continued to experiment and push the limits of music. And he, he did so incredibly successfully, and including this really his only piece written specifically as a ballet for the Alvin Ailey Company. They commissioned this piece, and he wrote it for a small ensemble, but he went into the studio with like 12 musicians, having not written a note, and then three days later, this piece was done. And they were all in there full time kind of playing, well, what if you guys do this? What if you guys do that? And ostensibly, it tells the story of a river. You know, it starts out kind of as this a spring that then kind of grows and gets larger. And I always say it's like the American version of the Moldau. And the Moldau, if you know this wonderful piece by Smetna, which tells the story of this river from its two sources up in the mountains and eventually makes its way up to the sea. Uh, it very much does that here with Ellington's version, and it passes several things along its way. It, one of the most famous movements is called Giggling Rapids. I've done this piece for several education concerts over the years because kids love that piece and it's kind of a little quick jazz waltz and the whole thing's like three and a half minutes so that movement goes by very quickly but taken as a whole there are actually seven movements that have been orchestrated for traditional orchestra and we'll be doing five of those but the entire ballet consisted originally of 12 movements I should clarify too that we will have guest dancers for the Copeland, the State Street Ballet from Santa Barbara will be coming up. We're not doing the 13 instrument version, we're doing the 25 instrument version. Copeland wrote that, yes, it's 13 instruments, but you can use as many strings as you can use. So we're doubling the number of strings and we'll be back at the back of the stage with the dancers up front. And then for the second half for the Ellington that we were just talking about, our full orchestra comes downstage with no dancers for this one, because it's just written for a a large sort of 70-piece orchestra. And you hear everything from uh, intimate moments with four or five players to this grand sort of sweeping big band sound, uh, a little bit of everything. And uh, there are just wonderful moments, wonderful colors, uh, a true master of of music and even rehearsing it was one one moment the other night where the players like I have a B natural against the viola's B flat that's got to be wrong we should change that and I was like wait I was like I don't know so I had them like you know build the chord and we were like you oh, know that is right Like you saw the players were like wow that does sound right with uh, some of the chords here they're very modern and. But never that sound, they, they never sound modern for gratuity's sake, but really part of, of a whole that just feels beautiful, inevitable, a great sense of melody, and particularly a great sense of color.
11: You know, those harmonies and altered chords and things like that, I mean, Ellington was as important as anybody as making those just kind of part of the normal harmonic vocabulary in the 20th century. Right. Um, I
12: think that's true. These compo- those, in 1950s in particular, there was this huge expansion of what normal could sound like. It wasn't like, it wasn't weird harmonies anymore. It's just like no, it's, it's just these are harmonies. And it really expanded, I think, what composers were able to do. And I think by the 1950s though, I think there was room, there was a chance to say, wait, we can write music that isn't modern for modern sake. We can just expand the harmonies of what what our ears willing to accept.
11: Well, Bruce Kiesling, congrats on a great season uh, for you and the Sequoia Symphony Orchestra. Their next concert is coming up this Saturday, February 12th, 7.30 p.m. at the Visalia Fox Theater. And you can learn more about it online at sequoiasymphonyorchestra.com. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us today.
12: David, thanks so much for having me. Great to see you.
1: And that's today's Valley Edition. You can hear all this and more on our website, kvpr.org. You can also download the podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We've got an app. It's called KVPR. The show is produced by our news team, including Alice Daniel, Carrie Klein, Mathy Bolaños, and Sarith Hawk. Technical support is from Don Weaver. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks for listening.
0: Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment, health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health equity.